turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Real quick, if you missed last week, uh, in short, here's what you missed. We, the members of Grace of Anne, have a great responsibility to nominate and elect uh, the men that will lead this church in the office of elder. So you have just under two weeks to turn those nominations in, uh, due at the end of the month. You can nominate as many men as you like, so long as they fit the biblical requirement for the office of elder. And if you want help understanding those biblical requirements, that's what we did in here last week. We went through all of them. Um, and that lesson is on the app under 20s and 30s titled Nominating Elders. So you can find that there. This week we're picking back up in our study of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 8 through 10. We're really going to focus um, on 8 and 9, really just the, the one truth of grace. But Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Follow as I read, this is the Word of God. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen. Again, we're going we're gonna to break this down over the next uh, many lessons in here. We'll, we'll take a week to really focus on faith and the nature of faith and, and uh, the fact that faith is a grace. But um, for today, we're really just focusing on grace. This is really one of the great statements of the Christian faith, one that we hear a lot about around here. I'd say if there's anything that Dr. Young has committed his ministry to, it is communicating to the people of God that we are saved by grace. Um, and because we hear it a lot, I think that we face the temptation just to kind of gloss over it. Like, oh, you know, grace, got it. On to the next thing. But don't let this become ordinary. God's grace truly is amazing. And one of the ways that we don't let things become ordinary is we soak in them and meditate on them uh, prayerfully. So here's a quick lesson in Bible study. The first thing we want to do um, in Bible studies, we want to mine the truth principles out of whatever passage we're reading at the time. What is it saying? We, we want to get it out and you know hold it up and so that we have kind of a clear grasp on what it's saying. Sometimes that takes more digging than others. I don't think you have to dig as hard here. Pretty self-explanatory. And, and once we have a firm grasp on something of what the, teaching, the Bible is teaching us, we want to reflect on it. We want to meditate on it. Um, think about it like holding a diamond to the light and turning it every which way. Beholding its beauty, filling our, our thoughts with its truth. We want to view it from different angles. Uh, we want to let it lead us to prayer and worship. Thinking of illustrations and applications for our lives as we go. Uh, John Otley shared a, a statistic from a survey out of some megachurch. And they were just talking about spiritual disciplines. And they said, what is the single greatest spiritual discipline that has been catalytic in, in Christians' lives or that has just catapulted people to, to new growth and more significant growth in their life. What one thing above anything else? 
And it was Bible study, but not just Bible study, Bible reflection or meditation. Really digging in and then, like a diamond to the light, really beholding its truth and meditating on the truth of God's Word. Um, It's a necessary discipline in our growth. Related to that, uh, I think that Tim Keller, you don't have to agree with me, but I, I think that Tim Keller is one of the best Bible preachers on the planet today. He, he has some of the most relevant and powerful insights into how the Bible's teaching applies to our life here and now. Um, that said, I recently heard that he says that some of his or most of his significant insights for preaching come after meditating on a passage for 30 minutes. Uh, which I thought was pretty telling. You know, he has to spend time in the text. We have to soak in the truth in order for the truth to soak into us. Another example is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, who was a German pastor and martyr who, uh, during the time of Hitler, he was not a Jew, but he was a Christian who thought it was our responsibility to defend the Jews during the Holocaust and everything like that. And if you don't know the story, uh, ultimately he was killed in a concentration camp just before uh, Hitler was killed. But Bonhoeffer, every day, of course he was reading more um, than, than just one verse, but he would locate one verse and then he would meditate on that verse for 30 minutes. Um, you know, 30 minutes... That's Tim Keller, that's Dietrich Bonhoeffer, maybe that's too much for you. But, you know, it would be great a great discipline to incorporate into your own Bible study. So, to do it, you'd at least have to carve out 30 to 45 minutes every morning. Um, and if that means you have to wake up at 5, well, go to bed earlier and wake up at 5. And you'll get used to it after a while. But, you know, read a chapter or two or three each morning. There's really no magic number. And when you're done reading... Think back on what you just read and locate a verse or a couple of verses that stick out to you. So, for example, maybe you're reading Ephesians 2 and verses 8 and 9, by grace you have been saved, stick out to you. Spend 20 to 30 minutes meditating on this truth, just thinking through it from every angle. Maybe a, a journal may help you do that. And, and pray as you think. That's what we talk about when we mean meditation, is thinking and soaking in um, and that's not an emptying of your mind. Meditation is actually filling your mind with with truth. There's a few resources. Um, you may go, you know, I, I want to do that, and I carve out some time, and I get there, and I just don't know what to do. And I, I read some stuff and never remember what I read and all that. Um, well, here's some resources, and they're on the back table. You can pick them up. I, if you were there Wednesday night, I talked about them. But um, this is a, a New Testament Bible reading plan. I certainly think you should also read the Old, but uh, perhaps this is just a good place to place to start to kind of build your, that's the white one, New, New Testament Bible reading. This yellow one is uh, how to pray through the Psalms, 30 days praying through the Psalms, that's, you know, a good one. And this one may be the best one, uh, John Otley put these together, and this is meeting God in your Bible reading. And so this is really coaching on how to meditate in a passage of Scripture, how to think through and pray through a passage of Scripture. Um, so, it's okay if it feels a little mechanical at the beginning. What we're trying to do is build disciplines that help free us into a better Bible study. Um, so, there's that. But, uh, all to say, this is very familiar. By grace we have been saved. 
And we, we run the risk of that beautiful truth becoming stale to us, but it will not become stale to us if we make prayerful meditation on the truth one of the central practices of our lives. So, um, my hope in this class is certainly to teach you the truth of what we're studying. You can come in here and get fed, but we don't meet together every day, and uh, you need to eat every day. So, Another hope I have is that this time together would serve as an example to you for how the Bible can be studied. We tend to spend 30 minutes or so on one or two verses. So um, not only is the Word being ministered to you, but maybe you can also observe you know, kind of how we work through a passage in order to see how to kind of do that. Um, one way to think through a passage, and one of the things that I always try to do in here, is I try to capture a truth in the larger biblical story. So that's why we do so much flipping between Old Testament and New Testament. I'm trying to show you the context of what we're reading in the New Testament and the Old Testament. Um, And and it makes the Bible smaller. Though though the Bible has many human authors, 40, and many books, 66, um, and in many parts with many amazing details, it's ultimately one story with one storyteller. The Bible is one book made up of smaller books. It's written by one author, God, through many human authors instruments, people. So um, as much as possible, I want to think about one text in its larger context. How does this fit into the overarching story of redemption? Um, I also want to think about it how, it how it fits into its particular book, because though there's perfect unity in the whole Bible, each book has its own culture and its own context. So why don't we do those two things with our passage today? Think about it from the the big picture view, the whole Bible, and and also in its own book. Um, First, let's think about it in context of the whole Bible. By grace you have been saved. This is not your own doing. It's not a result of works. Salvation is a gift to you from God. Now, don't raise your hand, but I want you to think to yourself. We're trying to think about this passage in the context of the whole Bible. Would you say that grace is a new phenomenon in the Old Testament, I mean in the New Testament. To say another way, is it true that God saves His people by grace now, not works, but people used to be saved by works? It is not true to say that. So, you know, that's, if you were going to say it was, I didn't want to embarrass you. But... Uh, <laughs> God's people have always been saved by grace. And I want to show you a couple of places in the Old Testament where we can clearly see this. I, I may have shown you one of these or a couple of these before. But if you answered the question, yes, God's people did used to be saved by works or have ever been saved by works, you need to see these places again. And if you answered no, no, that doesn't sound right, but I'm not really sure why. I don't really know where I would go to prove that. Um, I'm going to show you a few passages that you can cling to that show us that God's people have always been saved by grace. So turn to Genesis chapter 3. Here we are at the very beginning. Genesis 1 and 2, creation. Genesis 1, creation, kind of big picture view. Uh, Genesis 2, really focusing on the creation of man. 
And then, of course, in the beginning of Genesis 3, we have the fall into sin. There comes the serpent. Um, Adam is nowhere to be found, holding the responsibility that God gave to him. Uh, the, Eve gets deceived. Sin happens. Um, and then you have God's response to sin uh, after this. So one of the things we see is that Adam and Eve try to hide themselves, and you know, sin brings on shame. They were naked and unashamed when they were created. Sin comes in. Now they're naked and ashamed. And um, they try to cover their shame with fig leaves, which doesn't work. Um, and we'll talk about how God gives a better cover here in a minute. But uh, So you see sin and shame, they try to hide from God. Don't we do that too? We, we think we can hide from God in our sin, but we can't. And they couldn't. The next thing that happens is God, you know, He found them after they, in their great hiding place. And... Uh, then God curses the serpent, God curses Adam, God curses Eve. Um, that's verses 14 through 19. And as I've said in here many times, in the middle of the curses, we have a promise. In Genesis 3.15, we have a promise that says, uh, God says, I will put enmity, He says this to the, to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head you shall bruise his heel. Now, some translations say, uh, he shall crush your head and you will bruise his heel. Either way, uh, even if it's just bruise your head, he will bruise your head, you will bruise his heel. It's showing, you know, it's, it's worse to get your head bruised than your heel bruised, right? And so it's talking about this offspring of the woman who's going to come and defeat the offspring of the serpent, Satan. It's talking about Jesus in Genesis 3.15. There's going to be an offspring of the woman who's going to come and defeat everything that's going on here in the fall. That, that's a promise of Christ. It's, it's called the Proto-Euangelion, the first gospel. And so in the midst of the curses, we have a promise of God's grace. Also, in this, you know that right after the curses... Um, or you may not know, but you can see in verse 22 and following, right after God curses, He sends Adam and Eve out of the garden and He closes the door. Sin separates us from God. Even one sin. And we're separated from God in our sin. Of course, Jesus has come to bring us back to God um, and pave the way of reconciliation. That said, before God sends Adam and Eve out of the garden, He does something, and you can see it in verse 21. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Okay, so God is about to kick Adam and Eve out of his presence because sin separates us from God. But even before he sends them out, we see his grace. That is a picture of God's grace. He clothes them. They couldn't clothe themselves with the fig leaves. God clothes them with animal skins. And uh, that is to say, I make the way to cover your sins. And think about this. The animal had to be sacrificed in order for the skins to be made, which is a picture of Christ. It's a picture of the one true sacrifice that God would uh, give in order to cover our sins. It's a picture of God's grace, of God's people getting what we don't deserve. Adam and Eve did not deserve God's grace, but they got God's grace um, by grace. <laughs> Turn to Genesis 6. 
see the context of Genesis 6, uh, or this, this is Noah and the flood, but you can see the context of that in verses 5-7. through seven. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So this is where sin had taken mankind. Everyone was evil in the thoughts of his heart. Only evil continually. And the Lord, and by the way, this is all of us in our natural state. We are so soaked in sin um, that we could say this about ourselves until God intervenes. We, every intention of the thought of his heart, and you're thinking, well, I wasn't like evil. Well, if, if your thoughts are not perfectly loving and worshipful to God, what is that? Is that just like not as bad as some of the others? No, the whole design of our life is to worship and love God. And so if we're not doing that, um, and I would say that's not our instinct when we come out, is it? Anyway, that's the, that's the condition. And the Lord was sorry that He had made man on the earth. It grieved Him to His heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. So, because of sin and because of its great corruption in man, God is going to send a flood to destroy mankind. But, verse 8, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, um, many a Sunday school lesson has been taught saying, and maybe, maybe you heard this when you were growing up, saying that the reason that Noah got saved in the ark was because Noah was good. Verse 8 corrects that. Noah was a recipient of God's favor. Or you could say Noah was a recipient of God's grace. Now, the reason people would say that Noah was a good man and that that's the reason that he got saved is because of the next verse. So um, look at Genesis 6 verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. So, the reason that people would say, well, Noah was good and that's why he got saved is because of what it says. It says Noah was righteous. It says he walked with God. But you can't divorce verse 9 from verse 8. And verse 8 says that Noah was a recipient of God's grace. The reason Noah was declared righteous, the reason Noah walked with God, is the same reason that we are declared righteous and that we walk with God because we are recipients of God's grace. So to show this more strongly, uh, turn back to Genesis 2. Again, chapter 1 is this big picture view of creation. God created uh, all things, and it's kind of shown us that there in chapter 1. Chapter 2 is focusing in more on the creation of mankind. Um, in, in chapter, and particularly, it's uh, starting in verse 4 that we get the, the switch of focus onto the creation of mankind. You can see the break in verse uh, 4 of chapter 2. And if you read in chapter 1, you, you may not know, but the, uh, the chapter and verse breaks in the Bible are man-made. Put them in there to better for reference, better for study, uh, better to help us know what's where and, and all that. But they're not perfect. Sometimes they're not very good. And this is one of those cases. If you read, remember, this would have been just a manuscript, right? The whole thing. But if you read like at the end of uh, verse, or the end of chapter 1 in your Bible, 
And it says, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth, the sixth day. Then chapter 2, verse 1, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. So it's, a, it's keeping with what he's saying in chapter 1. It, it's an extension of what he's saying. Really, it'd be better if chapter 2 started at verse 4, because that's where the shift in his thought or the shift in his perspective changes, where he says, These are the generations of the heaven and the earth, and they are created in the day the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Um, then he's going into focusing more particularly on this creation of mankind. All to say, verse 4, there's this big shift in his, in his thinking. Um, he's talking about these things from two different angles. Now turn back to Genesis 6. Does that make sense? Okay. No? Yes? Okay. In Genesis 6... Um, at verse 9, there is another clean break between verse 8 and verse 9, where it's the same author, Moses, and his, his perspective is changing after verse 8 and at verse 9. And the reason I say that, look at the wording. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. It's the same wording that he uses in chapter 2, verse 4. These are the generations. So it's as though the scene closed in verse 8, you know, the scene is over and the curtain closes and the curtain reopens and there's a new scene starting in verse 9. The last scene closed with Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The end. Curtain closed. Um, in other words, Noah was a recipient of God's grace and that's the end of the show. Curtain closes, scene ends. Curtain reopens, new scene begins, verse 9. Noah was a righteous man. He was blameless or above reproach. We looked at that last week talking about elders. He walked with God. The point is that the last thing Moses the author did before this new scene opened was he established the fact of God's grace at work in Noah's life. Noah received favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a recipient of God's grace. The curtain closes. New scene opens. And we see the effect of God's grace in Noah's life. He walked with God. It's like Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, which says, Salvation is all grace. It's a total gift from God. It's not a result of anything that you can do. It's not a result of works. And the very next verse, verse 10, says, We are created in Christ for good works. We are created in Christ Jesus. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're not saved by works, but we, we are saved by God's grace, but we are saved for works. And uh, so God's grace not only forgives us, but it transforms us. God's grace enables us to do what we once could not do and follow after God. God's grace changes us. It enables us to, to follow God in His way. So it was for Noah all the way back in Genesis chapter 6. He was a recipient of God's grace, and scene ends, curtain closes, new, new scene begins, Noah's a new guy. He's walking with God. So, um, pretty cool stuff. Noah was not saved because he was good. Romans 3 says that no one is righteous and no one is good in and of themselves, and that applies to everyone, uh, Noah included. Noah was saved by God's grace. Another place that strengthens this point is in Genesis chapter 9, so you can turn there.
So the flood happens, you know, Noah and his family and the animals, they get on the boat and uh, they, then the flood stops and they get off the boat and we pick up, when they get off the ark, you pick up in chapter 9, verse 18. The sons of Noah went from the ark, uh, who went from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham, Ham was the father of Canaan. Uh, these three were the sons of Noah and from these people the whole earth uh, were dispersed. Look at verse 20. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. Verse 21. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Interesting little insert there. Uh, why is this in there? It's the same reason, if you remember a few weeks ago, we looked at Lot, who says Lot was a righteous man, and yet there's that detail in there about Lot doing the same thing and getting drunk and his daughter sleeping with him. And it's like, whoa, that doesn't seem righteous. You know, what's going on there? It's, those details are in there to show us that they were still sinners. Noah was still a sinner. Noah was not saved by works. If it depended on his works, he would have been damned. Noah was a recipient of God's favor, of God's grace. One more place I want to show you. Turn to Exodus chapter 20. Uh, people may not have a problem saying that Noah was saved by grace or even seeing God's grace at work with Adam and Eve. Yeah, the animal skins, that makes sense. But where people usually have questions or problems is in regard to the law. Um, didn't something change when God gave Israel the law? Like, weren't people then saved by works under the law, keeping the law? No. Um, Exodus 20 is the giving of the law. God has just brought the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, under, and, and He used Moses to do that. Moses brings the people to Mount Sinai, and God gives the law, the Ten Commandments. Now, um, when He gave the Ten Commandments, was He saying, here you go, we'll see how this works out, keep these and you'll be saved. Or was He saying something else? We'll, we'll look at uh, chapter 20 of Exodus, verse 1. And I'll read uh, the giving of the law. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other, no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Um, you shall not take the name of your Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. So um, there are lots of shalls and shall nots, right? Do this and don't do that. But look at how it starts. I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. It starts with what God has done. It starts, the whole context of the giving of the law is God's grace to the people of Israel. So, when we think about our text for today in context of the whole Bible, we see that no one has ever been saved by their works. Everyone who has ever been saved has been saved by God's grace. The only hope in the world is that our God is a God of grace. We see God's grace with Israel in the giving of the law. 
We see it even earlier with Noah. Um, And even earlier than that, way back at the beginning, with uh, God's response to sin in the garden, He makes a promise of grace to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15. And then He gives us a picture of grace with the uh, clothing them in, in animal skins. Now let's also think about our passage in the context of the book of Ephesians. Everything Paul has been saying from the beginning of the letter really comes to a head in Genesis 2, 8 and 9. He's been unpacking the riches of God's grace for 30 verses leading up to this, and then he caps it off. He's been developing his point the whole time, and now he's bringing it home. By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of your works, so that no one may boast. So think about some of the ways um, that he has developed this until now. And if you have your Bibles open to Ephesians, you can follow with me. But in verse 3, which is the opening for the whole first section, uh, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. This whole thing is about God blessing us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The whole context of the first opening section is Paul praising God for the fact that He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And then he spells out these blessings in the following verses. Verse 4, He chose us in Christ before the world began. Verses 5 and 6, He chose us in Christ in order to adopt us into His family in Christ. And then it says, to the praise of His glorious grace. The reason God chose us And the reason He has adopted us into His family was to show off His grace. What was so that His grace would be high and lifted up and exalted. Verse 7, In Christ we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Verses 11-14, through In Christ we have an eternal inheritance, and the Holy Spirit has been given to us. It's a gift uh, as the guarantee of our inheritance in Christ. Chapter 2, we were dead in our sins, but we've been made alive in Christ. We were children of wrath. We have now become children of God. By grace, you have been saved. From the beginning of chapter 1 up until now, Paul is laying out the details of our great salvation and over and over again, he cannot get away from this idea that it is God's Grace. So in verses 8 and 9, really what he's doing is just restating what he's been saying the whole time. By grace you've been saved. Not you, not works. God's grace. By grace you have been saved. Is there any other message um, in the whole Bible that God wants His people to understand more than this? I mean, how much ink is spilled here getting us to try to understand this? The only message that he might want us to understand more is that Jesus Christ is the embodiment of his grace. But he wants us to understand grace. You know, one of the things about teaching God's Word is I find um, more and more that God is committed to getting me to understand the Word so I can teach it to others. But he's not just committed to getting me to understand it intellectually. He also wants me to understand it experientially. And this week has been no different. Um, had one of those weekends where uh, I have been very aware of remaining sin in my life. And Tiffany has been very aware of remaining sin in my life. Um, so I've had the thought, why do I still go on sinning? I mean, God has given all of us who are Christians the Holy Spirit, right? And 
Couldn't He fill me with His Spirit to such a degree that I have no more sin? Couldn't He fill you to such a degree that you have no more sin and your your affections are totally inflamed for God all the time and that's all and there's nothing else? Couldn't He totally eradicate sin in my life? Of course He could. But He doesn't. Why? I don't know. I'm not exactly sure, but I'm pretty sure this is one of the reasons. I think God is so committed to getting us to understand that salvation is by grace, not works. You know, if you do good all the time, you have a hard time understanding this grace stuff. Nothing we can do. It's a gift from Him. I think He's so committed to keeping us grounded in His grace that we are going to have some measure of sin in our lives until we go. He's not going to fully eradicate it. In order to remind us that we don't save ourselves. In order to remind us over and over again that we're saved by His grace. It's a gift we don't deserve. And in order to, we, we just have to understand over and again, I don't deserve this. And if nothing else, remaining sin in our life becomes a tool to teach us more about God and His grace. So, when you're sin, all of us wants to be better. Okay? I want to be better. That's a good thing. But, when your sin is glaring, and when your conscience accuses you, and when your, con- your accuser accuses you, remember God's grace with Adam and Eve. Remember God's grace with Noah. Remember God's grace in the giving of the law to Israel. And remember that you, are, you have been saved by God's grace. When you blow it, and you will, Go back through the book of Ephesians. Meditate on the riches of God's grace in chapter 1. On into chapter 2. By grace, you have been saved. It is finished. Your sins have been paid for. Your sins are, right now, fully and finally forgiven in Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven... We are broken vessels. We are soaked in sin. It's ugly. We hate it. We wish it were gone. We hate that our sin hurts those that we love. Lord, but we we find comfort in this fact. It's not about us. It's not about our works. It's not about us performing to a level to earn it. You have saved us by Your pure grace. It's a gift. Lord, um, so I say thank You for remaining sin. Even though it sounds crazy, I, I thank You that You're using it to show me more and more of who You are and whose I am and, and the purity and wonder of, of this great gift of salvation in Christ. Lord, I pray that You would open the Scriptures to us. I pray that You would uh, uh, bring rest to Your people today with the Gospel of grace. We do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Yes.